open your Bible, if you would, to Romans chapter 7. So we're going to walk through this text sequentially. I'm not going to read it all in one shot. We're going to walk through it with each main point. We'll read some of the passage and move along a little bit at a time. Um, let me just say by way of introduction, so there is a lot of ongoing debate about this passage. This is probably the thorniest passage in Romans, which isn't to say... Uh, there's a long list of thorny passages in Romans that are complicated to interpret, but I'll just say it this way. A number of New Testament scholars and theologians who agree at virtually all the other interpretive points of Romans disagree at what to do with Romans 7, 7 through 25, where there is a lot of alignment in other passages of Scripture. Uh, scholars of the same stripe will part company in this text. And part of it is just identifying, okay, who is Paul talking about? What experience is he talking about? So by way of introduction, just look down at verse 14. When Paul says, I am of the flesh sold as a slave under sin, what does that mean? Is he talking about his own Christian experience at the time that he's writing this letter? Uh, in other words, is he saying, Romans 7, being sold under sin is just Tuesday. It's just the way I wake up in the morning, I am a slave and I'm in bondage to sin. In other words, is Romans 7 basically saying, even though as Christians we want to be holy, um, we continually fall short of God's standards. On the other hand, other interpreters look at this passage and they say, it doesn't seem to be Paul's present experience at the time of the writing. How could Paul say in chapter 7, I am a slave sold under sin, when in chapter 6 he just said, guess who's not slaves anymore, sold under sin? We aren't. We're, we're free in Christ. We're not in Adam anymore. We're not under the rule of three, death, law, and sin. We have been freed to slavery, to righteousness, right? So there's clearly some tension in how do we navigate the language and, and tone of Romans 6 with the language and tone of of Romans 7. That particular debate continues. It's gone on for over a thousand years. Uh, we're not going to solve it this morning. Here's my point, is while exploring those questions has some value and might be interesting to us, I think a more sure-footed course is rather than trying to answer the questions that we bring to the text, let's answer the questions that arise in the text. So the Apostle Paul himself is writing the text, and he tells us in advance, under divine inspiration, these are the questions I intend to answer in Romans chapter 7. What are the questions? Look at verse 7. Is the law sin? He's going to answer that one. Verse 13, did what is good become death to me? He's going to answer that one. Verse 24, who will rescue me from this body of death? Those are the questions that the apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, here's where I'm going to take you. You follow me. Here's the questions that I'm going to answer in the course of this text. And if those are the questions that Paul answers, and they are, then I think the answers that Paul provides to those questions leads us to this big idea. It's not in your notes, but I would encourage you to write it down. The law cannot free us from spiritual death. I think that's the big idea. When Paul answers these questions... The upshot is the law cannot free us from spiritual death. It's true no matter who you are this morning. It's true no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. Law can't free us from spiritual death. It never has been able to, never will be able to. Why can't it? I mean, the law is good. The law is of God. Why can't the law get that work done? Um, and it can't for a few reasons, and we're going to frame them in, in 
terms of a formula. So the first formula is this. Good law plus sin equals death. Good law plus sin equals death. Look at it in the text, verse 7. What should we say then? Is the law sin? No way. Absolutely not. But I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, do not covet. And sin, get this, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. But sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond Measure. So Paul is using these personal pronouns, I and me. But in a way, the story that Paul is telling is much bigger than Paul. The story that Paul is telling is much older than Paul. It reaches all the way back to the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the story of Adam and Eve in the fall. What happened in Genesis chapter 3, right? God had set them up in every way. He blessed them. He walked with them in the cool of the garden, uh, right? And, and, and he gives them one law, one command. So there's the command. He gives them one command and what happens? Satan goes to work on that command, (laughs) right? Satan uses that command as a door jam to open a conversation. And what does he say? He starts to pry on that law and say, did he really give you this command? Why, pray tell, just imagine with me, why would he not want you to eat this stuff? Let's just think about that for a second. What might this tree offer you? How might you break the glass ceiling if you took a bite? Of some of this, right? So he sowed suspicion using the door jam of God's command itself. And it's interesting, when Eve broke the command, what was the first sin that she committed? The one that Paul mentions here in this text, the sin of covetousness. She saw the fruit that it was desirable to make one wise. Right? I can have wisdom that I haven't previously had access to. I desire something I don't have. It's the sin of covetousness. Well, look in verse 8. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. All the way back to the primordial sin of coveting. In other words, to whatever degree Paul is talking about his own life, pre-conversion or post-conversion, past or present, this formula holds true. Good law plus sin equals death. And that goes all the way back to the beginning. In that story, the commandment that God gave there in the garden didn't empower them to obey the command. The command sat there and sin found a way to pull the law into its orbit. That's what happened, right? Law, um, Law does a number on us because of our sin. The great theologian Aurelius Augustine from the 4th century, he tells a story in his classic book, The Confessions. He tells a story about he and his friends, and they just wanted to be up to some mischief. And he said, so we went and we stole like a cartload of pears from our neighbor's house. And he looks back on that episode from his earlier life as, as a child, and he says, why did we steal those pears? 
and he answers the question. He thinks out loud as he's writing. And he says, did we steal those pears because we were starving, because we were hungry? He said, no, we didn't even eat them. We threw them to the hogs. He said, did we steal those pears because we just didn't have access to pears or, or they were more delicious than the pears that we ate elsewhere? He said, no, we had pear trees in our own yard. And our pears tasted better than their pears because we took a bite or two before we threw them to the hogs. He said, so we didn't even want them because they were particularly delicious. He said, there was only one reason we went and stole a cartload of pears from our neighbors. And it was because it was forbidden. We stole their pears because they weren't our pears. In other words, there's nothing electric or exciting about just going and grabbing a pear from the island in the kitchen. There's something very electric about climbing over the neighbor's fence and going and stealing a cartload of his pears. He's talking about that very same dynamic here. The book of Proverbs talks about the same thing. It captures it when it says, stolen water is sweet. You already have water, but there's something about stolen water. There's something about somebody else's pears, somebody else's tree. It tastes a little more delicious. It's a little more exciting, right? This verse captures the universal experience of what happens when we encounter God's law. It doesn't mean the rules are bad. It doesn't mean God's law is bad. His, his commands are bad. No, God's commands are good. Get this. To obey them from the heart is wisdom. So if you ask the apostle Paul and you pull up and you say, hey, a penny for your thoughts. What do you think about obedience to God's law? He says, I'm a fan. <laughs> I like obeying the Lord. I think it's wise to obey the Lord. I think it goes way better for us when we live with the grain of God's design than when we live against the grain of God's design. There's wisdom in obedience to the law. He's not throwing the law under the bus in Romans chapter 7, even though a number of uh, interpreters will sometimes read Romans 7 as the, the passage that gives us license to throw the law under the bus. Look what Paul says. Look down in your text. Verse 12, so the law is holy. And now he's going to add three more adjectives. And the commandment is holy and just and good. None of those are insults. Those are compliments. Verse 13, did what is good become death? No. Sin was producing death through what is good. That's a reference to the law. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. He goes on to say, I'm the problem. Verse 16, I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 22, in my inner self, I delight in God's law. So, Romans 7 could not be clearer. For all the things that are hard to interpret, it's not hard to answer the question, is the law sin? Because Paul answers it explicitly. No, the law in itself is good. But the point here is when the law comes into contact with sin, there's a chemical reaction of sorts. If you were here last week, you know chemistry really probably isn't the area that I should be venturing into. We could use Mrs. Tiliakis, my chemistry teacher, to come back and help us at this point, right? But, but here's the idea is that when law combines, when these elements combine of law and sin and, and this gurgles together and bubbles in the Bunsen burner, right? So this thing I'm doing with my hands, that's chemistry. That's, that's the chemistry thing, right? Fizzing, bubbling, gurgling, like that happens and this combination creates something. And what Paul says it creates is death, <laughs> Good law plus sin gives us death. When the law interacts with our sin, it produces more sin and death in us. So God's commands are good. Think about it this way. Um, electricity in your home or in your apartment is a good thing, but electricity um, mishandled turns a good thing into a deadly thing, right? 
I think sometimes that's what we fail to appreciate is God's law. You know, it's like Paul is saying here, essentially, look, I, I taught Torah in the finest seminary on earth. And I'm just, I just want you to know the law can kill you if you don't handle it properly. These wires are hot. This, this thing can kill you. You need to be careful with God's commands. Let me just back up and just talk as an aside to Christians. We handle God's law all the time, as well we should. We talk about God's commands all the time. And yet sometimes I think the way that we casually or flippantly handle God's law without thinking carefully and theologically about the relationship the Christian has to the law of God, it can almost sound like you and me saying to one another, hey, why don't we wire your house this weekend? It's like, wait, hold on. Does either one of you understand the, uh, the potential here of you guys just casually wiring each other's houses up? These wires are hot, Paul is saying. You need to be careful in the way that we handle God's law. So what does this mean for you as a believer, as a follower of Jesus? It means this. If you seek to be justified before God on the basis of your obedience... You will either live under guilt and condemnation because you're not pulling it off or you will be inflated and arrogant and self-righteous because you think you are pulling it off. Either one of those outcomes is death. Either one is the law kills. The law cannot free us from spiritual death, never could, never will. Good law plus sin equals death. Second, good desires plus sin equals frustration. Good desires plus sin equals frustration. Read, uh, follow along in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave under sin. For I do not understand what I'm doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I want, do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but is sin living in me? For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. So buckle in here, all right, verse 19. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. Here's the principle. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. That is a mouthful. That explains why for over a thousand years, theologians have been scratching their heads saying, okay, what on earth is he talking about here? So think about it. This isn't a trick question. Is it good to want to obey the Lord? And the answer is yes. Right, so that was the easy form of the question. Let me ask it a little bit differently. Is it good to want to obey God's law? Is it good to want to obey God's commands in our lives? And the answer there again is yes. <laughs> That's the goal, to obey God's commands and to do so from the heart, from acceptance, not for acceptance, but to do it from the heart, 
motivated by joy and faith in him, trusting him and loving him. That's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul's going to talk about that in chapter 8. So then why, if it's good to obey the law, why is there so much negativity all around Romans chapter 7? Even negativity connected to verse 22. Look again at verse 22. In my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war. What's going on here? It's this, when our desire to do what is right interacts with our indwelling sin, we experience frustrating inability. We experience frustrating inability. So I want to apply this to our lives as Christians. To whatever degree you, as a follower of Jesus, live as if your relationship with God depends more on what you do than on what Christ has done in your place in his living and dying and rising, that the result of that will be less growth and more frustration, not more growth toward holiness. So think about it this way. Um, we've been driving, having teenagers, we have been driving our kids to ball games of various kinds, it's a volleyball or it's a basketball or whatever, for, for all these years, driving down Highway 11 to that same sports complex, game after game, some big games, everything's on the line, championship games, right? And here's the thing, is uh, I don't choose the hype music on the way to the big games because hype music for me is, is the great hymns of the 17th century. And my kids don't feel pumped up by 17th century hymns. I don't know why, but anyway, they're like, Lecrae is way better than, you know, Augustus Top Lady. Uh, so we're listening to, you know, they're choosing the music and it's bumping and it's awesome and it's you're unstoppable and you're going to win and all this, all this stuff, right? That's the music that hypes them up. Well, you think about why would we, in order to hype ourselves up to obey God, why would we put on the headphones of the law when the law is shouting in our headphones, you're a loser, you're going to lose. You lost yesterday, right? And you're going to lose again today. That's what law is. It's not hype music. And yet so often as Christians, we thoughtlessly think, I want to obey more. And we reach for law music. And that's what Paul seems to be saying in that way is the law is not going to motivate you to keep the law. So the music of the law is not going to lead you more to holiness. Here's the wild irony of Romans 6 through 8. Those who fixate on commands don't achieve greater success in keeping those commands. And you could go at it from the other direction as well. But those who live under the good of God's grace don't keep the law less, but more. And do it from the heart, right, in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where we got to go lean all the way into grace, out of Adam, under grace that reigns through righteousness. And actually, it achieves better results in the direction of holiness than the music of law. Here's the thing I don't want us to miss, is Romans 7 doesn't excuse sin. You know, sometimes Romans 7 is handled in that way, as if we can play fast and loose with our sins and just kind of give sin more and more leash. You read Romans 7 and you listen to this man. He is in agony. Over what? Over his sin. He doesn't like it. He doesn't want more leash so he can live a little. He hates sin. He wants to obey God better, more. He, from the heart, that's what he desires. He wants to, his life to bring glory to the one who was crucified in his place. 
That's the language of this text. Who will rescue me from this body of death? He's reaching toward the return of Jesus Christ. It's not because he's looking forward to the pearly gates. It's because he knows at the return of Christ, this ultimate and final consummate rescue means I don't have to sin anymore. I don't have to fight and struggle and make war anymore. Everything in my being will want one thing. Glorify Jesus. Everything in my being will be doing the same thing, pulling in one direction. May his name be magnified. That's what the whole of my being is going to say. The, the hymn, the great hymn of the Christian faith, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And it talks about some of the aspects and themes that are here. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's a very Romans 7 kind of thing, isn't it? And yet, how does that hymn end? What's the last stanza of that great hymn? Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, Lord, make it happen. So I'm living holy before you, holy to your glory. Look, what, what's, the, what's the frustration here in this text? The frustration in the relationship between Romans 6 and 7 is something like this. There's an already not yet dimension of the Christian faith. Though we have died to sin, sin hasn't died in us. Though we've died to sin, sin hasn't died in us. You know, it's like the old adage, you, you, you can take a boy out of the country, you can't take the country out of the boy. If you've ever seen the movie um, Born Identity, the main character comes into the movie with amnesia. Crisis event, ha accident happens, and, and he's got amnesia. He doesn't know his name, doesn't know what he did for a living, right? And then he comes to discover that what he did for a living is he was a government-trained assassin. And he discovers this in odd ways, right? He's put in dangerous situation after dangerous situation, and it starts to dawn on him that he has a special set of skills, Right, he can suddenly, without any forethought, speak fluent German. He can speak fluent French. Where did I get this? How did I take apart a Glock in half a second? Right, how did I just take apart two German guards without even thinking about it? Right, and a lot of this is just muscle memory. He's not thinking, what was I? Now let me lean into my gifts. He, he just, there's this muscle memory from his old life that just comes unbidden into his current experience. He brings a pen to a knife fight and he wins. Right, just unusual skills. And here's the thing, he wants to leave his old life behind and his old life just keeps chasing him. <laughs> right, he wants to not be an assassin anymore and all these assassins keep ch chasing him and forcing him to do the thing that he used to know how to do. So his old instincts start taking over. I think that's sort of what's happening here. We died to sin, but sin didn't die in us. We are no longer in Adam, but we have stunning muscle memory, don't we? From our old lives. So good desires plus sin equals frustration, and lastly, agony plus grace equals gratitude. Agony plus grace equals gratitude. There's this cry at the end of the passage, and it's, it's mixed with agony and hope. Look at it, verse 24, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? There's the agony, and here's the thanksgiving. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the tension is still there. So then with my mind, I am myself serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. The law of God cannot produce spiritual life. In, in the great 
allegory of John Bunyan, uh, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a classic. You should read it. It, it, it elucidates so much of the Christian life in really practical, uh, red-blooded ways. And in, in it, there's a conversation between two disciples of Jesus. One is named Christian. The other is named Faithful. And Faithful is recounting a story from his journey that got him here. And he, he says, look, I barely made it here. I almost died a minute ago. And he's like, one guy beat me half to death. And then I got up and recovered from that. I'm running up a hill. And I look back behind me and somebody's coming. A different guy's coming, running swift as the wind, catches up to me, knocks me down. And now I'm almost dead again. I can't get up from this. And I turn to this other guy and I say, why in the world would you hit me? Who are you? Why did you hit me? And he says, I hit you because you sinned. Or in the 17th century language of John Bunyan, I hit you because I saw your secret inclining to Adam the first. I saw your inclination to your old life. And so I had to strike you down and condemn you for that inclination. And here's how the conversation then goes. Faithful says, and once he said that, he struck me again. So I lay at his feet as dead. When I cried for mercy, he said, I do not know how to show mercy. And knocked me down again. And no doubt he would have made an end of me. But one came by and commanded him to refrain. Who made him stop? I did not know him at first, but as he went by, I noticed the holes in his hands and in his side. Then I concluded that he was our Lord. So I continued up the hill. Christian then interprets it for him. That man who overtook you was Moses. He spares none. Neither does he know how to show mercy to those who transgress his law. The law cannot free us from spiritual death. For that we have the gospel. <laughs> For that we have a savior who is Christ. Christian friend, on the days that you feel guilt is washing over you and you feel dirty, you feel a thousand miles away from the gracious smile of God, you have someone, namely Jesus, who can catch, who can catch the fist of the Mosaic law, who can turn it away so that it does not beat you to death. Jesus Christ is the one to whom we run for refuge, not law. Law will not help you get back up, only Jesus will. Our inability to self-fuel change is meant to drive us to our Redeemer. Isn't that what we see here at the end of the text? Who can possibly rescue me from this, right? And he says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It drives him to the Redeemer. Look, the message of the Bible, the gospel that is the center of the biblical story is left to ourselves, there is no hope. Look, there are two paths that lead to final death and judgment before God. The road of rebellion and the road of religion. The road of rebellion says, I'll do what I want and God will either forgive me or I don't care because I really don't think about him that much and I don't take him that seriously. That's the road of rebellion leads to death. Then there's the road of religion which says, I'll do my best and that's going to be enough. And both of those lead to death. Only one road leads to life. It's not the road of rebellion. It's not the road of religion. It's the road of redemption where we put our trust in Jesus Christ and in him alone where he says, I will take your guilt, your punishment, your sin to the cross, to the ground, rise again from the dead. You get a new name when you believe in me. You get a new family. You get a new power from the Holy Spirit. You get a new purpose in the world on my mission. Utterly new identity. 
in Jesus. Everything hinges on union with Jesus by faith. But here's the thing, until we reach heaven, there's still tension in the Christian life because we have a new relationship to the law. But it's hard to forget the old relationship that we had to the law, right? So go back for just a moment to last week's study where our passage early in Romans chapter 7 depicts the Mosaic law as a husband who is merciless and condemning. And Paul said, we died in the realm where we were married to the law so that we might belong to another. Who's the other? It's Jesus Christ himself. But climb all the way into the illustration. Imagine that woman married to law all those years, the constant drip of condemnation. You failed me again. What a miserable wife you are, right? And law just speaks that word every day, right? And so now she's no longer bound to that marriage. She's died in that realm, and now she's married to another. Are we surprised this woman has nightmares? Are we surprised that there's some sense of the, the residual trauma of the old marriage, the old relationship that she had to the law? And in a way, I think Romans 7 is Paul saying, you died to the realm where you were married to the law, but you still have nightmares. You, you, you can still... As it were, you can hear the law's voice bellowing down the hall as if it's still there. And then all of a sudden, here comes all that shame. Here comes all that fear and all of that guilt you used to live under constantly when you were under law's roof. And it's back and it feels so present and so real. Romans 7, praise God, the book of Romans doesn't end at the end of Romans 7. What a, what a defeatist outlook, right? But, but it's not the end of the story because after spending a whole chapter saying the law cannot free us from spiritual death, you know what Romans 8 says? But what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And God is doing by giving us the power of his Holy Spirit to live a new life. Romans 8 is such welcome news. <laughs> After Romans 7. Mm. So Brooke Hills, three things. Resist unhealthy teachings regarding sanctification and our progress in holiness. And I'm going to walk through this pretty quickly. I'm, I'm already beyond our time, but I'm just going to walk through these quickly. Think about defeatism and triumphalism, and hopefully they'll become more clear what those mean as we move through. Defeatism says Christians are still slaves of sin and have no power to fight it. What's the problem there? It's a denial of what the Bible teaches about the change the gospel brings, about the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Triumphalism, on the other hand, says, since Christians are not slaves of sin, we therefore should live in total victory. What's wrong with that? It's a denial of what the Bible teaches about indwelling sin in the believer. Defeatism breeds a lawless Christianity. God doesn't expect obedience, so why should I expect to obey? Triumphalism breeds a self-righteous Christianity where we're shocked by the sins of others. What's wrong with you jokers? How come you guys can't figure it out the way I have? How come you're not as successful in this holiness thing as I am? Defeatism leaves struggling Christians who expect no real power for change. You know, I'd love to believe I can overcome, but I just can't. Triumphalism, on the other hand, leaves struggling Christians to wonder, what's wrong with me? 
that I'm not living in total victory like so many other brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we'll finish with these two. Triumphalism fails to remind us of the finished work of Jesus. Defeatism fails to remind us of the endless power of the Spirit. So number two, expect setbacks. Christian friend, we don't set ourselves up to succeed by pretending we're going to live on a mountaintop of Christian experience until the end of our lives. There will be setbacks, right? Um, some of the most holy people in the Bible experience failures and setbacks. One of the reasons we have Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the language of the reset. Psalm 51 is what you say to God after you face plant. You could, you could pull up Psalm 51 and you can sing the song on your way back to him. God, start it over again. Give me mercy. Give me help. Give me power. Wash me and cleanse me with hyssop. Make me white again. Make me clean. Take the guilt away. Expect setbacks. And third, finally, expect progress. <laughs> expect progress. John Newton famously said, I am not yet what I shall be. I am not what I want to be, but I am not what I used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. If anyone is in Christ, the Apostle Paul says, he is a new creation. Nightmares notwithstanding, the old has passed away, and behold, everything is becoming new.